All right, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bible with you this morning. And, you know, one of the songs I remember singing growing up, well, we didn't sing this one this morning, um, but growing up at every vacation Bible school I went to, we sang one particular song, and that was, If You're Happy and You Know It, you know the rest of that one, right? And, yeah, and I, I, I grew up in a small town um, in, in rural Alabama, and so when VBS started up in the summer, you went to all of them. Right? It didn't matter the church, the denomination, really didn't matter much what they were teaching. It was probably kind of a dangerous thing. But um, I went to a lot of VBSs growing up because it was something to do to get out of the house for a week. And one thing, it didn't matter if it was the Baptist church or the Church of Christ church or what church it was, they were going to sing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. We're going to sing the same songs. We're always going to sing that song. And not one time in all my VBSs do I remember ever singing, if you're sad and you know it. You know, I don't know what you'd do. Put your hands in your pockets and frown. I don't know. But we, we never sang that. We don't celebrate that. We don't celebrate sadness in our culture, we, but we actually celebrate happiness. We sing happy birthday, right? We don't sing sad birthday. We sing happy birthday, right? We celebrate sadness. We don't just want sadness. We celebrate sadness. We were, I mean, excuse me, happiness. And, you know, but the truth is in our world, there's actually a lot of sadness. There's a lot of sadness, a lot of grieving in our world. And for the most part, our world tries to avoid it. We, we go out of our way to avoid sadness. We don't like it. We don't want to feel it. We, we want to step around it. We avoid situations that might make us sad. But there's even some sadness that even our culture would tell you is good that we just know instinctively is good. For instance, if you lose a loved one, we know it's good to mourn, that that's healthy to a degree. We know um, that when someone you love is hurting or going through pain or difficult time, it's natural and, and emotionally healthy to empathize with them and to, and to mourn with them. Anybody would say that. But for the most part in our society, we avoid sadness. If a kid's sad, we cheer them up, right? This toy, this piece of candy, whatever it is. If we're sad, we do whatever it takes to get us out of that mood, whether it's a, a long drive with the windows down, whether it's your hobby and what you like to do, whatever that is, right? Vegging out, whatever it is to shift the mood, we want to try to get out of that mood. And in fact, if you meet someone that you know sad, this is what you typically do, you pity them. We pity people that we see that are sad. Because we believe in our culture that the happiest people must be those that things are best with, right? We kind of envy those people. When you see someone that you think is happier than you are, I wish I was as happy as they are. I wish we were as happy as they are because we assume this. We assume if they look happy, they must have it all figured out because we deeply value happiness, right? It's part of the American dream. It's kind of innate. It's built into the DNA of our culture is the pursuit of happiness. But then Jesus comes along in Matthew 5, 4, and he says that there is a sadness, that there is a sorrow, that there is a mourning that is deeply good. In fact, he's going to tell us this morning that it is a characteristic of those who truly possess the kingdom of God. That there is a type of mourning, a type of sadness this morning that is gloriously good. And now listen, our world many times condemns it, scoffs at it, rolls their eyes at it, doesn't see the good in it. So look with me this morning at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read the first four, four verses, and we're going to zero in with laser focus on verse 4. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now that's our verse this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, so this week, we're in week two of the Beatitudes. If you weren't with us last week, we kicked off a new series in the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthews 5, 6, and 7, the most famous sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus. It is the core of his teaching, right? And the core of that core is the Beatitudes. And so last week, we opened up with that first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what we learned is it's of the utmost importance. So if you missed last week, it's actually, I don't always say this, it's actually good to go back and watch or listen to that message because literally, without getting that, and I'm about to to summarize it for you, it's hard to understand the rest. Because the blessed are the poor in spirit, in a sense, understanding that is the gateway, is the door to understanding the Sermon on the Mount and not misinterpreting it. And especially the Beatitudes. Because Jesus made it clear, it's the poor in spirit who are truly blessed. It's the poor in spirit who are going to heaven. And it's only the poor in spirit who are going to heaven. Everybody in heaven this morning is, was poor in spirit. And everybody in hell was not. There's not a single person who was genuinely poor in spirit, as Jesus meant it, that's in hell this morning. And not a single person that wasn't that's in heaven. So that's pretty important. That's, that, that's, that's important, right? I mean, if it's that critical. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And that word blessed, we said last week, means happy. It means, can mean favored. And it can mean fortunate. It's basically being in a state that all is well between you and God. You are favored by God. All is good between you and Him. You are in this blessed state. Now this leads, I believe, to a deep abiding sense of joy, a happiness that the world can't shake, that's not based on circumstances, that's rooted in God. But He's not primarily talking about a feeling. He's primarily talking about a state of being no matter how you feel. And He says the poor in spirit are the first group He talked about. Last week what we talked about is that is people who realize their true condition before God. The poor in spirit realize that they are spiritually bankrupt, empty, and powerless before God. That they do not have the resources to please God or to live life like God has designed life to be lived. They don't have it. So they have to look to God and depend on God and His grace for the resources and all they need for salvation and to live life as God designed. That's the poor in spirit. Everybody is poor before God. Everybody's empty and bankrupt before God, but only the poor in spirit know it and realize it and feel it. it it's, it's a cognizance. It's a, it's a recognition in your life. And here's the thing. Bottom line is what Jesus is saying to some degree is you can't get saved without knowing you need saving. <laughs> That's like 101, right? You, you got to get lost before you can get found. And as a believer, you continue to live dependent on the Lord as a Christian. Listen, we're never more unchristian in the way we're living than when we're living like we don't need the Lord. Because the very beginning, the very definition, the very beginning of what it means to be a Christian is to first and foremost realize we need the Lord. And once you understand what it means to be poor in spirit, the second beatitude makes more sense, those who mourn. Because in large part, it's a response to the first attitude beatitude only the poor in spirit will mourn like what Jesus means here so let's break this down what did Jesus mean by blessed are those who mourn let's cover that first the word mourn there means to be sad it means to grieve it means a feeling of deep sorrow 
So let me ask you, does this mean that every sad person, every mournful person is blessed and comforted? No, he's talking about a particular kind of sadness. Listen, I live in a home that many times is in a state of mourning. I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I've got a two-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son, and there's always somebody mourning in our home. Right? They're mourning the toy that was taken away by their brother or sister. They're mourning what's for dinner that they don't want. They're mourning being disciplined for fighting with their brother and sister. Sometimes our four-year-old son just wakes up from a nap and he's in a state of mourning. You want to break off the sack, sackcloth and ashes, right? I mean, he just wakes up and everything he asks for, he's mourning and he's mourning. Does that mean I've got the happiest, blessed, most blessed home on the planet? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about every kind of sadness. He's not talking about every kind of... It's not a general thing. Jesus doesn't generally speak in generalities. He's not just saying, listen, everybody that mourns will one day be comforted. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. This mourning is a mourning that's a response to the spiritual condition that's been recognized in the first beatitude. See, why are we poor in spirit? Why are we so empty and wrecked before God? Why are we so helpless and powerless and and utterly pitiful before a holy God? Because we are sinners. So this is primarily a mourning over our condition and over our sin and its effects in the world, especially in us and even in others. See, in general, Jesus seems to be speaking of a heart attitude toward our condition, toward our sin, and all its effects that ultimately will lead to the right attitudes and actions, the right, excuse me, the right actions and response towards sin and its effects. A heart attitude toward our condition, our sin, and all its effects that leads to the right action or response towards sin and all its effects. See, the world is broken, and Christians know this and feel this instinctively. Believers look around at the world, and rather than feel judgmental, many times we just feel broken and and pitiful right along with it. It's why when you look out at the pain and the suffering and the turmoil and the heartbreak in our world and in the church caused by sin, it affects us and it makes us sorrowful. Because Christians don't just look... See, everybody can look at a sad happening or something painful or or, or suffering that happens and, and can mourn, but Christians make a connection that the world doesn't make. We see the connection to this is not how God said it's to be. Right? We know that there's coming a day, a better day for this world. And we know that it's not here yet. So there's a sense in which we just kind of live in this, Romans calls it, a groaning within us. There's a mourning within us. You know, Jesus said in Luke 6.25, which is a similar passage to this, when another, probably another time where Jesus was preaching some similar stuff. And in Luke 6.25, Luke records Jesus saying this. Not only did he say happy are those who mourn, Blessed are those who mourn. He said, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. See, Jesus is saying there's a reversal coming in the world. Everything's going to be reversed. There are those that laugh at God. There are those who care nothing for the needs of others. They are self-centered and self-focused. Jesus isn't condemning joy. Jesus isn't condemning laughter. Jesus is condemning a calloused, hard-hearted approach to life. Because, see, all laughter isn't healthy. Some laughter is sick. Laughing at our sin is sick. And there are those who go through life without ever coming to the realization that the world is a broken place and that the problem with the world is them. They never come to that realization. Maybe that's you this morning. 
You look around and you see the problems, you see the brokenness, you see all that's messed up in the world, but you've not made the connection yet that you're the problem. That I'm the problem. See, some people, maybe even some here today this morning, live life with a joy and a happiness that's completely disconnected from reality. It's a, it's a lesser joy. Because it hasn't taken seriously the world's greatest problem or our greatest problem. It's a joy that's literally not of God. It's a joy in self. It's a joy in life. It's a joy that enjoys God's gifts, but it doesn't enjoy God. It's a joy that's never genuinely come face to face with the reality of who God is and who we are. It's artificial. It's, it's a lesser than. You see, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about this particular beatitude. He said, there is a seriousness about the Christian life. A sobriety about it. Let me ask you, have you ever been around someone who's just doesn't take anything serious and doesn't know when to be serious. I'm not talking about like they're like the life of the party. I'm talking about they're annoying, right? I'm talking about like, imagine this is the person, you're at a family member's funeral standing over the casket. For some reason, they feel a need to make an unrelated joke, right? You said people like that aren't real. Oh, they're real, right? right? If you sit alone at funerals and at weddings and people don't invite you to nice things, you might be said person, right? They're, those people are real. They're, there's, it's awkward, and they're kind of, it's kind of annoying because you're like, do you take anything seriously? Is life just a joke to you? Well, in a sense, in a sense, there are people who take life in general like that in the sense of the things that are most serious about life, God, Jesus, eternity, the kingdom of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't really take those things seriously. To them, there's not really a nickel's difference between a soccer game on Sunday and a church service on Sunday. One, both are just ways to spend your time on the weekend. There, there's a lack of seriousness and sobriety to eternity and to the things of God. But Christians are sober spirit. They know that sin plays for keeps. And that everything's not a joke. Life's not just beaches and barbecues. But there's a seriousness to life. A sobriety. That there's a real God, a real hell, real people that are there and headed there. And we're to have a, a mournful heart attitude towards sin that leads to the right response towards sin and its effects. But that has to start in our own heart. It starts with my personal sin, my personal condition. See, we mourn our spiritual condition and we repent. We mourn our sin and, and we repent. Believers know that sin offends God. Christians are people that grieve at the state of the world but understand we've played a part in that, that we are the problem and that we've offended God with our sin and we mourn and continue to mourn our condition and continue to mourn our sin when we sin. See, you can't become a Christian without being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? You don't just wake up on Tuesday morning and say, I think I'll become a Christian today. That's impossible. If it does happen, it's because the Holy Spirit has convicted you and drawn you to Him. He's awakened you, He's quickened you is what we call it, to your lostness. It's not just of yourself. God has to move on your heart. And there's a conviction that takes place that says this, I'm guilty. I'm guilty before God. And I don't have anything in myself to fix it. 
And it creates a mourning and a longing for forgiveness, a longing for the relationship to be restored. Without that, you'll never seek a Savior. It's why we come to Christ. It's why we believe Jesus died for us. It's why we believe He rose again. It's what makes it possible for us to rest and rely upon Him is because we understand we need Him. We need Him. And without Him, we're lost. And so we repent. And the word repent means we, we change our mind it's a turning of the mind, turning of the heart. It's a 180, not a 360. <laughs> you do a 360, you're what? Right back where you started. A lot of people do that. A lot of youth camp and revival experiences where people did, you know, 360s. But a 180 is a turning from in the, in the mind that leads to a changing of direction in the life. Repentance. And without it, Jesus says no one enters the kingdom of heaven. He says repent, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. And see, as a Christian, you come into the kingdom by repenting, and then it continues. We've mentioned this before. It continues. Martin Luther said all of life, all of the Christian life is repentance. Now let me read. It's going to be on the screen. I want to show you probably one of the most relatable passages to, to this beatitude. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. Here, Paul is addressing a church. He had to write, a, not 1 Corinthians. There was another letter that we don't have. He had to write the Corinthians to to deal with a sin issue that was going on. Not the one in 1 Corinthians, that 1 Corinthians 5 talks about, a different one that we don't fully understand and people have different theories on. And he had to write him a pretty harsh letter. You're like, I thought the first letter was pretty harsh. Yeah, I know, you know. These people really had to, you know, get their act together, right? And so Paul had to address that with them. And he's talking about that letter and their response to it in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. Listen to this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, some translations say godly sorrow, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. See, there is both a godly sorrow, Paul tells us here, and a worldly sorrow that's in the world today. And only one leads to repentance. See, worldly sorrow can be defined several ways. You might feel bad you got caught in sin. You might feel bad that you caused others pain. You might feel embarrassed by your sin. You might feel ashamed by your sin. Right? Not that these are bad things. Sometimes it might even be a, a sorrow that's caused by lust or desires that go unfulfilled. The point is this. It's a very self-focused sorrow. It's very self-centered in its sorrow, in its brokenness, in its grief. A clear example of this is a guy named Esau in the Old Testament. Esau was the grandson of Abraham. We did a series on Abraham a few weeks, several weeks ago uh, where we went through the life of Abraham. And Esau was Abraham's grandson. He was the son of, uh, the brother of Jacob and the son of Isaac. And there came a point in Esau's life, and Esau was just, just a hard-hearted, foolish man. And he sold what was called his birthright for a meal one day. He was hungry. He came in from a hunt, 
And his brother had made some stew, and he wanted some so bad that he said, I'll sell you my birthright if you'll just give me... He literally sold his birthright. She said, what's that all about? Well, birthright came with all sorts of privileges as the firstborn son. It was a big deal. It was a shameful thing that brought really shame on his father and his family, and it was just a foolish, foolish, shameful thing for him to do this. It just showed that he was somebody that didn't take life very seriously. And he sold it for a meal. And then the time came for the blessing to come over the one with the birthright. And he decided he wanted that blessing. And Hebrews 12 tells us he was rejected. And it says he sought the birthright or the blessing from the birthright with tears, with weeping he wanted it. And it says this word in Hebrews 12, he found no place for repentance. See, it's possible to be sorrowful and to weep and to mourn and not repent because it wasn't godly sorrow. It was just, I want that. I hate that I'm missing that. It was very self-centered, self-focused sorrow. You can feel guilty and sorrowful and ashamed, but that doesn't mean you're mourning in what Jesus is referring to as the blessed sense. There is a guilt that produces a sorrow, now listen, that does not lead to God. Some of you know people, or maybe you are a person, who wept in a church service, who wept at a camp experience, who wept in a revival experience, who wept at a conference, vowed to be a new person, and they're worse off today than they were then. Like a pig returning to its vomit, the Bible tells us. They didn't get better, they got worse. It just took some time. I say, what was that? It was probably worldly sorrow. I don't know their heart. You say, why, how, how do we know the difference? One leads to death and one leads to repentance. That's the only thing Paul tells us. See, that's what, he makes it very clear. One leads to death. Sin leads to death. See, one continues in the sin, one leads to death, and one leads to repentance and life change. See, Christians are repenters, and they feel a godly sorrow. I've broken God's law. I've offended God. It's not merely inward. It's up. David said this way, I've sinned against you and you alone, O God, in Psalm 51. And the way you know the difference is not by how big the tears are. It's they repent. <laughs> it's the, that's the way. One leads to death, one leads to repentance. And Christians are repenters. We sin, but we repent. We experience godly sorrow. We mourn our sin, we repent. And Christians do not take sin lightly. And when we do, we repent of that. Because we're repenters. See, Christians know that there's something wrong in the world, and we know that we're connected to it, that it's in us. See, our world thinks there's nothing wrong with you this morning. If there is... Many would say that it can be fixed with medicine. Maybe some of it can be. Many would say it can be fixed with training, environment, resources. This, but that can't fix it, what we're talking about this morning. See, many in our culture today would say morally, as long as you're not hurting other people, and the culture, by the way, gets to decide what constitutes hurting other people, as long as you're not sinning against the moral code of the particular culture you're in, that you're good. In fact, the world will tell you this. That's just who you are. That's how God made you. You're not hurting anyone, so you need to be you. And in our world, the worst sin is this. The worst sin in our culture today is this. Sin against yourself. Proceed to sin against yourself. Depriving yourself. Denying yourself. It's the very thing Jesus said you got to do if you're going to come after him. 
is deny yourself and take up your cross. And our world says the worst thing you can do is deny yourself. Don't deny yourself. Don't hurt anybody, but don't deny yourself. What do you want to be? What do you want to do? What do you want to have? Who do you think you are? Embrace it. That's what the world would say. Sin against self. Sin against cultural norms. That's considered the worst sins in our culture today. And with that, homosexuality and abortion and other culturally acceptable but morally wrong sins are justified in our culture and a host of others. And Christianity says, no, the worst kind of sin is against God. And until you realize you've sinned against God, until you long for God's forgiveness, you'll never seek a Savior. Let me ask you, have you mourned your spiritual condition? Have you mourned your sin? Are you sensitive towards sin? You see, this is not a one-time thing for the Christian. Real Christians go through life with a sensitivity towards sin. There's a war that's going on inside of them until death. Because while we should sin less, we don't stop sinning until heaven. We continue to struggle, we continue to battle. In Romans 7, Paul recorded this. Some people think that, and I don't believe this at all, that, that Romans 7 was lost Paul, and Romans 8 is saved Paul. But that's not the case at all, I don't believe. What we see in Romans 7 is a saved man battling sin, and there's a war going on. He says, I don't want to do this. I did this, but I don't want to do this. There's a war between what I want to do and what I find myself doing sometimes, and it's driving me nuts. And then at the end of Romans 7, verses 24 and 25, he screams out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you've got to get wretched before you can say thanks be to God through Jesus. But the, that's a Christian saying that. I'm wretched. They realize I've got a problem. I want, I want to fix this. I know my only hope is Jesus. And there's coming a day where this is going to be over. See, Christians have the Holy Spirit and we have a new nature. So when we sin, there's a war, there's a battle. See, I worry about the people that don't have a battle going on inside them. That don't have a war. People that shrug at sin. Well, I can't be perfect. And neither are you, by the way. They're quick to point out. They defend and justify continually. There's no wretched man or woman that I am. And most likely, there's no Holy Spirit in their life. See, Christians mourn sin, but it starts with our own. We can't mourn what's out there if we're not willing to look in here. But we also mourn the sins out there, the sins of others, the effects of sin and how it affects us and society and others because Christians hate sin. They mourn in the lives of other people, but especially other Christians. We, we see and feel its effects in the world, the presence of suffering, persecution, suffering and pain of others. And we make the connection to sin and brokenness. We long for God to make it right. We long for justice. We long for peace. We're ultimately longing for a new heaven and a new earth. Romans 8 talks about that, that longing. And so when we see oppression or we see injustice caused by sin, there's a mourning that takes place in our hearts as well. For instance, next Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Churches all over the United States kind of recognize that Sunday. It's been said that it's sad that we have to have it. You say, what is it? Well, it's a day that we just set aside to recognize and, and promote the idea that life is sacred and a gift from God and that he is sovereign over it. That is kind of sad that we have to have that day. 
But in a country that's, that's killed and taken the lives of over 50 million children since the passing of Roe v. Wade, we need it. In a culture that's more and more open to the idea of euthanasia and other immoral practices of taking life in their own hands, you, you have to kind of talk about that, talk about those things. See, Christians mourn the loss of these lives. We mourn how many women have been exploited by an abortion culture. We know that abortion is not primarily a political issue, but it's actually a moral one. No matter what party, the left or the right, or somewhere in the middle that you find yourself, you know that particular issue is not political, it's moral. It's moral. And so we, we mourn this. It's why we involve ourselves and we give to ministries like the Crisis Pregnancy Center. It's why you see Christians all over the world adopting and doing foster care. It's why we pray. It's why we do these things. But there's also a mourning over the lostness of people. Right? We, we see sin and how it wrecks people's lives and how they're disconnected from God and, and we mourn over that. There's also a mourning over sins in the church because we know that Christians are representatives of Christ and it brings shame on the name of Christ when a leader or a Christian in the church walks in darkness instead of light. How it grieves God and it grieves us. And by the way, a lack of mourning in the church over other people's sin in the church is a huge flashing neon sign of a huge defect in the community in the church. If we don't mourn over the sins of others in our church, we can't practice biblical community. We, if we don't weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, and, I'll, and mourn over their sin, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us to do. 1 Corinthians 5. So there's a state of mourning in the Christian life over our sin, its effects, the sins of others, as we await our future glory. But that's not all. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who mourn. That's, that's not the message this morning. That's part of the message. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what does he mean by comforted? See, when you mourn, you... Ex you your sin, and you come to Christ, you experience the comfort of God, the comfort of forgiveness. You look out at a broken world and people and mourn all the sin and its effects, but deep down you know there's coming a day where God's going to right the ship. You know that God's going to make all things new. And we need to understand that there is a now to the Christian comfort and there is a later to Christian comfort. We experience comfort now, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Look on the screen, John 16, 7. John 16, 7, Jesus said this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The helper. Some translations say the comforter. It's the same root word in the Greek that is said of the comfort that Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes. It's the same root word that he uses to describe the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter. The encourager, the one, it means, it's parakaleo. It's one who comes alongside to help. Romans 8, 9, the Apostle Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He goes down a few verses later in verse 16 and says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. See, at conversion, you're given the Holy Spirit immediately. The moment you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit invades your life and begins to take over. And the first thing you begin to feel, to a certain, I, don't, I don't like using those words, but there's a sense, there's a comfort when you understand that you're forgiven. 
And then the Holy Spirit reminds us and points us and illuminates our eyes to see God's promises in his word, to know that there's coming a day where we'll experience comfort in its finality. Because ultimate comfort comes later. It comes later. Now, we don't like that. We don't like the wait. I remember when I was a kid, we'd go, go on vacation. And vacation for us usually meant a seven-hour drive to the beach because that was about the nearest one. And as a kid, that was miserable, right? Because you're just anxious and you're, you're waiting. And, and when I was real young, our car, our, and that was usually, we didn't have a minivan or an SUV. We had a sedan. And when I was real young, it was a Toyota Corolla. Ever been in the backseat of one of those? I don't care how little or how old you are. That's not a great place to be, right? And, so you're, and this is the question that gets heralded from the backseat on those trips. And you already know it. Are we there yet? And what do we mean by that? There is better than here. And so I'd like to be there, so how close are we, right? And as Christians, we know we're not there yet. We know we're not there yet. We know that there is better than here. We know that heaven's going to be glorious, but it's not yet here. We're not there yet. And we can look around and we know it. And so there's this, there's this tension. There's this, this waiting, this longing, this groaning that Romans 8 says. It's the Spirit of God in us, longing for that. Revelation 21.4 describes what the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, the Bible's clear. There's coming a day when mourning and sadness will completely end. There'll be no more. And right now, we experience comfort from the Holy Spirit. We experience comfort from the peace of God and from the Holy Spirit of God and from the Word of God and knowing God's promises. But ultimate comfort in its finality with no mourning mingled in comes later. Because there's going to be no sin to mourn in heaven. There will be no sickness to mourn in heaven. There will be no pain to mourn in heaven. Our eyes will be wiped dry, he says in Revelation 21.4. Our mourning will be over. Justice will be done. We're going to be in eternity with God, new heaven, new earth, and it's going to be glorious. Beyond what we can describe and beyond what we can really understand. But much of the world's very idea of heaven today shows you just how broken our world is. See, the world kind of longs for heaven, a sense of heaven too. The world recognizes... Everybody recognizes this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Nobody being honest with themselves can say, yeah, everything's perfect in this world. We know that. We see enough commercials and news on TV to know that things aren't like they're supposed to be. But because we're broken, that apart from Christ, what we long for and what we look for and how we try to answer that question, it tends to be flawed and very wrong. Let me give you an example. One of the most famous songs ever written, Rolling Stone listed it as the third greatest song of all time is a song written by a man named John Lennon called Imagine. Yeah, I'm probably going to ruin it for some of you. Let me read you the first two verses. All of our resident hippies, you'll remember this. Imagine there's no heaven. That's the first line. It's easy if you try. No hell below us and above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That's the first verse. Second verse. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. 
Imagine all the people living life in peace. I'm leaving out all the you. I'm not doing that, okay? You know that's there. Let me ask you. And this is two verses in. Do you hear the mourning in that? But it's messed up. It's messed up. The world says, you know, you know what would make this world better? Let's just do away with the idea of God. Do away with the idea of heaven. Do away with the idea of hell. And that would, they, they want peace, but they don't know how to get there. And John Lennon was saying, listen, we want peace. We long for peace. Peace would be great. And the best way to get there is to remove God and heaven and hell and all that stuff from the equation. And that would fix everything. And he was right to long for peace. And he was wrong to the means. Because peace doesn't come, and comfort doesn't come apart from God. It comes in him. Through Christ. The Bible says, imagine this, a new heaven and a new earth. Where the perfect king, who is without sin, and all of his enemies are beneath his feet, rules and reigns for eternity. And there's no mourning, and there's no sickness, and there's no pain, because sin is ultimately done away with. See, as Christians, we mourn our sin. We, we mourn the state that the world's in. We mourn sin and all its effects in others' lives and our lives. But there's coming a day where we won't mourn anymore. Romans 8, 18, Paul said it this way, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. You say, is it worth it? Paul says, it ain't even worth thinking about that. It's so worth it. There's coming a day when all things will be new. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian today, are you taking your sins seriously as you should? Are you taking the other sins of others as seriously as you should? Be careful that you don't be conformed to the world's views on sin. Ask God to show you and to continue to show you what sin is, to break your heart over sin. That we look inward before we look outward, that we remove the speck from our eyes before we go taking planks out of others, as Jesus said. And for those this morning who, are, who know you, that you're just kind of feeling, you look around at the world and you're kind of really feeling that the last couple of weeks. You need to take comfort today if you're a Christian in the Holy Spirit and believe God's promise for a day when he will make all things new. But the comfort of forgiveness, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the comfort of heaven, all those things are only for those who've dealt with their sin. It's only, blessed are those who mourn. Who mourn and repent. You know, I heard someone say it this way. Jesus Christ is the most blessed one. That makes sense, right? He's the Son of God. He's the most blessed one, the Son of God. And Galatians says he became a curse for us. We're the ones under woe, right? Woe is the opposite of blessed. Woe is, I'm accursed. And the Bible says Jesus became a curse for us because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That was written in the law in the Old Testament. And the most blessed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, went and became a curse for us, died for our sin, bore our judgment, bore the wrath of God that we deserve so that you and I, through faith in Him, can be blessed. the sinless one in the place of the sinners. Isaiah 53 prophesied it this way in verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus bore our sin and he bore the consequences of it on the cross. Let me ask you today. Have you genuinely repented? Not felt bad, repented of your sin and rested in Christ. He died in your place. He rose again from the dead. Have you placed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior? And if you're a believer today, is there sin in your life that you need to mourn and repent of? I know it's a heavy message. This is the Beatitudes, I know. And we start, it starts, we start low. We start low. Start God humbling us and breaking our hearts. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn. For they, they, them and only them, shall be comforted. Let's pray.